Hello, Fellowship family. Next week, I want to invite you back because I'll be repelling from the rafters in a black outfit. That music always makes me want to do that. Hey, really glad you're here with us as we can continue through the book of Acts. And this morning, um, by the way, if you're kind of new here, I just want to kind of give you an update. We, we have a reading plan uh, that gets you into God's word every day. Because we think that's important for you to get into God's word, to be fed on more than just one day of a week, to have it into every day of your week. And uh, you can get one of these reading plans that will take you to read the passage up to the weekend that I'm going to be, uh, or anyone's going to be speaking about it here. So you can kind of prepare your heart for it and prepare your mind for God's word and to be taught in it as we get together. And uh, this week, if you've done that, you realize that we went through four chapters in the book of Acts. So I've extended my preaching time to well, to go well into the 3.30 time. I hope you guys are open for that. Just kidding. As you read the passage this week, there's something uh, kind of daunting about it. Because one word rises to the surface, and that word is suffering. When you look at this whole passage, that word kind of just rises to the top, and you, and you realize, my goodness, people suffered to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives. Now, I think just in this room, when God gathers us together on the weekend, he gathers many of us who have suffered. And some of you have had horrendous angles of suffering in your past or recent past that have kind of fractured your faith. And you wondered, how can I trust God when this thing happened to me or when he allowed this to happen in my life? Some of you are suffering right now. And although you probably would have wanted to stay home today, something within you drew you here to to get the confidence that the that the hope of Jesus gives us, the promises of God gives us in his word. Others of you have never suffered. But quite frankly, you will someday because following Jesus, we will suffer. That's kind of the, the reality, not that just we believe, but that we suffer for the name of Jesus. And here at Fellowship, we've been coming alongside a lot of people who are suffering every day. It's kind of overwhelming. But we come alongside and pray and comfort and encourage and affirm and trust God with them. It's overwhelming sometimes, isn't it? I remember snorkeling one time uh, in the Caribbean and there was it was 20 feet deep and it was really cool at 20 feet deep because there was the coral and the fish. The fish seemed to be smiling at you. It's like, this is awesome. I'm in Disney World in the real world. And look at all those colorful fish and everything. And then you drifted over an area that this place was known for that had a 7000 foot drop. And when you floated over it, everything became dark and nothing. You couldn't see anything, but your imagination just took over. And so you're really not good when that happens because you, I had like a pack of great white sharks just looking for me to come up from the depths and attack me. And so I you know, quickly swam back. It's overwhelming, isn't it? When the floor drops out of your life and you have this huge abyss and you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go. What is God doing when I suffer? And that's kind of what we want to talk about today as we look at God's word is we want to look at if we can move to that real quickly. What happens when you suffer? What is God doing when you suffer here? We're going to come across uh, three instances where specifically where people were suffering. 
One was Peter and John as they were beaten for the gospel. Literally 39 times they were flogged, which would leave lacerations on their back and, and scars that would last them the rest of their lives. Yet they moved from that, and as Acts 5.41 says, that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And that name is Jesus. They so preached boldly, which we talked about last week, in a way that they were beaten for it, and yet they rejoiced. Now, this is kind of high bar faith, isn't it? Not many of us rejoice when we suffer. Most of us get angry. Most of us get bitter. Most of us cry out, why? Why, God, are you allowing this? And yet we found throughout the book of Acts that for the gospel to move from one place to another, people had to suffer. And yet this is the world that they changed. This is the world where the gospel went out. It was the known world, the Roman Empire at that time. The gospel moved from Jerusalem which is right down here to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, which there is present day Turkey, Greece, uh, Italy, and, and then even Spain and even in Northern Africa. In their lifetimes, the, the gospel advanced to these areas because they were willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. And as we looked at it last week, it all started in Jerusalem at the temple there where at this gate, there was a man who was crippled and he was born crippled. He was in his 40s and he was begging for money and Peter didn't give him money. He gave him healing and he even restored. He had a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And they went around preaching and they were arrested for it. And they were warned never to preach about the name of Jesus again, but that didn't keep them back. They continued to preach. And it was all in this area where this story kind of begins and takes place in Acts chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Because although the gospel was expanding, although it was, it was growing, things were being resisted. You know, as we think about this, I want to be just as we think about suffering in your story, I kind of want to go out into the Mediterranean Sea here and have a conversation. And that is, what's your expectations of God and suffering? What is your concept of it? I found that people have key expectations about God so that when they suffer, they really, really struggle with what they believe about God or what they expect from God. Some of us believe that God should never allow his children to suffer. And this is really common. I've noticed this because suffering is painful. It's horrific on our lives, but even more on the lives of the ones that we love. We would never wish what's happening to people or even our own lives to happen to our worst enemies. And so we step back from those experiences and we say, God, you're a loving heavenly father. How could you allow your children when you have the power, when you have the knowledge to prevent this? Why do you let them suffer? That's a common question I hear all the time. That's a common question I've asked. And yet in this very passage, those whom God has anointed with the gospel, who called them to to preach the gospel, will suffer. His loved ones will suffer right here. They will be called to suffer. And you're going to see three different instances, three different outcomes when they suffered. Secondly, we ask the question, God never uses bad things for good things, right? And this is another thing, because we have this theology that says, God, you're holy 
You're righteous and you're good. You only bring good things into great things. You never use bad things for good things. Yet the gospel itself is always preached amongst the backdrop of sin, the bad news about us. And our relationship with God is always based on that reality that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life for us, one we couldn't live. And he died, he suffered, he was beaten, and he was crucified. That's a bad thing. And he died. And he was buried. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. That whole picture of the righteousness and the glory and the greatness of God is all amongst the badness that happened to him. Redemption itself is a transformation from what's bad about us to what God has given us that's good. Bad things will not, rep- will not limit the work of God. Others of us have a thought that good people deserve good things to happen to them. And this is really a works-based or performance-based relationship with God. That if I'm good, then God owes me. If I come to church, I better get good grades. The girl better say yes to winter formal. I mean, it's a week away. But we, we tend to think that if we're good, God owes good things to happen to us. On the other hand, if I make a mistake, if I make a failure, if I sin, well, then God's up there and he's making a list and he's checking it twice. And you better look out because when this bad thing happens, I got to look back. What did I ever do to deserve this? See what's happening? The issue with God and the truth about God is that we never get what we deserve. He always is kinder to us. He loves us and gives us love when we really deserve wrath. When we deserve hell, he gives us heaven because of his grace. His grace makes it available to us. God's not fair. He's not fair. He gives us far better than we deserve. And he sent Jesus because of his grace to us. Others of us look at God only can use my strengths. And so, boy, when we go through a time of suffering, we think we're on the sidelines. Forget it, God. You, everyone else, ministry, the advancement of the gospel, let that go. I'm just going to stay on the sidelines because God can't use me now. And the reality is, is if we've gone through all those strength finders, you work in a corporation or governmental agency and you took all those tests to put the right people in the right places for the right reasons, You think when you go through suffering and your weaknesses come out and who you don't want to be comes out, how could God ever use this? And yet the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to boast all the more about my weaknesses because in my weakness, that's where the power of God is made known. Three times he prayed for God to to relieve a sickness he had or an ailment he had. He called it a thorn in the flesh. Some even thought it was depression. And God said, no, I'm, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. God uses weakness. It's how we begin with the gospel. We humble ourselves to God and his work for us through Jesus. Others of us, and you can kind of tilt your head here. I'll give you a little kink in your neck. And ultimately, we kind of feel that the, all, the true blessings from God are health wealth, and prosperity. And there's even been denominations built up on, up on this that suffering serves no purpose. God only wants us to be happy, healthy, and wise. And, and everything would be great. And God's number one, it's kind of the Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite, his theology that trust Jesus and all your wildest dreams will come true. 
You know, it's that, that expectation from God. But you know what? Although these are good things, and the book of Ecclesiastes says, when times are good, thank God and enjoy him and love, love the life he's given you. When you go through suffering, we're going to find in the book of Acts that these weren't the ultimate blessings. The ultimate blessings was the salvation of people's hearts towards God, salvation of their lives, the gift of the Holy Spirit with them and the advancement of the gospel through them. Those were the ultimate blessings of a follower of Jesus is to be a part of the kingdom of God, part of his plan for us, which might include suffering for us. So as we look at the expectations of God and suffering, we've got to come down to the point. What happens when life misses your expectation of God or an outcome like suffering? A man who knew suffering was Job. And when Job lost everything, including his children, and his wife said, hey, why do you still love God? Why don't you just curse God and die? He says to her in Job chapter two, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In other words, yes, we have experienced his blessing through good things of family and financial blessings and and wealth. But when this happens, shall we not trust God through this time? It's kind of the the great rhetorical question for us. Can we trust God when we're suffering? When when uh, my expectations of God fall short of who he really is, I don't know what you do when you go through suffering. What what happens in your life? How do you respond to suffering? That's a good question for us to ask. So when you're suffering, what do you what happens in your life? I'll tell you, for me, I've cried. Why? I've gotten angry. I've isolated myself from people and kind of hold up in a in a lonely, depressed environment. I've gotten bitter. There have been times I've pushed the Bible aside. I've there's also been times, though, where I've held on to the hand of Jesus. Many of you who are suffering right now, you know what I'm talking. You're holding on to the hand of Jesus. You write down in that blank that's there. What do you tend to do when you suffer? Just talk about that. Now, this is our story when it comes to suffering. This is the theme of this passage is people who suffered. Let's take a look at their story so that we might have some perspective for hours. And that's what we're called into when most of the Bible is a story. It's a narration of the work of God in the lives of people. And so as we do this together, um, I want to kind of show you what is God doing? What is God doing when you're suffering? And let's look at what God was doing when they were suffering, because I think there are some transferable truths in this passage. The first thing that God was doing when they had, were called to suffer was he was planting the seeds of the gospel. He's giving the truth of what the gospel is to people. And here in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, it was very resistant. People who rejected Jesus. It was that council, the Sanhedrin. Remember, they were called to it last week when they were called and told, don't ever preach the name of Jesus to us anymore. And don't preach it around the temple either. Stop it. We're warning you. Acts chapter 5 
they preach and people are listening. It's multiplying. Remember, it started at 120, went to 3000 people. Then it's at 5000 people. And here in Acts chapter five, it's even it's even getting greater than that. But it says, but the priests, the priests heard this and they arrested them. So they put Peter and John in prison. But at prison that night, an angel came to them and said, go back into the temple and preach. Go stand in the temple, it says there, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And that was the name of Jesus, was the life. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that's who they proclaimed. Now, he told them to go into a place that God knew they would suffer for. It was in the plan of God. God wanted the gospel planted. Even though the soil was hard, it was resistant, it rejected Jesus himself, and it would reject them. They went. So they went and they preached and they preached. And as they preached, this is what they said. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And so they were basically saying to this Jewish leadership, repent, turn away from yourself and trust Jesus. And what did they do? They seethed. They wanted to kill him, except for a guy named Gamaliel who stood up and he said, hey, brothers, listen, if this is from God, we're not going to be able to stop it. But if it's from men, it will implode. We've seen people who have professed to be a Messiah before and they died. They had uh, they had a a revolution and, and it fell flat. So just leave them alone. And they said, well, at least let's hit them. So they hit them. They flogged them 39 times. And they bore the marks of the suffering for the name of Jesus. Passage kind of goes on pause there. And when then we pick up in chapter 7 with a man named Stephen. Stephen was one of the deacons. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But he was one of the deacons selected. But he powerfully preached. And people were listening to him in Jerusalem. He gets arrested. And chapter 7 is, if you just read it through the first time, it seems confusing. What is he really saying? What does he really mean? Commentators have been confounded by his passage, by his preaching there. But if you look at what he was doing, he was confronting for the last time the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. Jewish leaders loved two things. They loved the temple, the place of God, and they loved the law, the book of God. And they thought, we've got it all here. Look at this temple. This is our crown, our joy. Guess what Stephen said in his, he said, God was with Abraham. He was with Isaac. He was Jacob. He was with Joseph. He was with Moses. He was even with David and Solomon who built this, built this original one. But God has always been with people. He's never been about a place. So this place is something that will be torn down as Jesus prophesied. It's not. It's not about a place. And then when he talked about the law, he said, man, you've trashed the law. You don't live according to the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. He's he's the one who ultimately we need to be following now. And then in their most specific and pointed confrontation of this leadership, look at this language in chapter seven, verse 51. He said, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So did you. Man, you want to tick off any Jewish leader? Call them stiff-necked and uncircumcised. I mean, that's going to be, that's going to be the problem right there. 
And yet he spoke in the power of the Holy Spirit and they seethed and they, they it says that they literally closed their ears to him and picked up rocks and threw it at him and killed him, stoned him to death. Think about this. We've got three circumstances here. We've got Peter and John. They get arrested. An angel comes and delivers them. That's what we pray for, right? God, when I'm in suffering, when I get arrested, when I, this happens in my life, when I go through a difficult time, get me out. I want the angel. We want the angel to deliver us. But the angel, it doesn't stop there. Because then they get arrested again. And instead of getting delivered, they get flogged. They get beaten. They have scars on their backs for the rest of their lives. God, where are, where are you? And then you have Stephen who goes and preaches and they get so upset, they kill him. He dies for the gospel. And you go, wow, these are three people God loved. Three people who said that, who, who spoke and preached about Jesus. Three different results. But God was doing the same thing through each one of them. He was planting the gospel in the lives of people. Because God is patient, not wanting any to, any to perish, but to everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. And when you go through suffering, he wants to, he wants to plant the seeds of the gospel through your life. It's like Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. He says, for it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the conflict. And that's what he calls it. A conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That conflict is a cosmic conflict between God and Satan, good and evil. The gospel or works. It's that picture we're called to represent in times of suffering. What is God doing? He's planting seeds of the gospel. Secondly, he's establishing the gospel. Right in between this narrative, we get a kind of a weird thing going on in the church of Jerusalem. It started with some widows who were unsatisfied with service that the church was doing for them. Remember, the church met needs. They sold things to meet needs so that no one was in need. And here we had some Hellenist or Greek-speaking Jewish widows with some Aramaic or Jewish speaking, Aramaic speaking uh, Jewish widows. And the Jewish widows were, were going, were, they were treated well, they were provided for, but the Hellenist ones, they were not. So there was a discrepancy. They weren't being treated the same. And so the disciples got wrapped up in this. By the way, last time I read the definition of widow, someone had to die. So they were going through suffering. People going through suffering and the church was called to come alongside and love them, not just preach the truth of Jesus, but show the love of Jesus. That's what a church does. And as the church grew, it was overwhelming the number of people who were in crisis. I've realized that. I've realized that since we've grown from a hundred to into the thousands here. It's overwhelming when you just get that many people and to try to do ministry the same way you've always done, where I was the one doing all the hospital visits. I was the one showing up and comforting. I was the one helping people guide people through that. It was just overwhelming and I lost sleep. And my preaching kind of went like this too because I couldn't put the time in. And that's exactly what happened to the twelve. They got they got together and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And it's not that serving tables was anything less than preaching the word. 
It's just that God called them to preach, to be a witness. And yet what God was telling them is more people than you need to do ministry. And that's what God did in this church, Fellowship Bible Church. He raised up other people, not only leaders. He raised up people just like you who lead a small group and show up first when someone's going through crisis. Who looked around them on a weekend and looked at who's hurting around me? Who do I have and I talk to? And you spoke. See, if it were up to me, very few of you could be taken care of in this time. But because God is at work here, he's using many of you. And I, I see all the time some of my dearest friends who are suffering right now of how loved they are by how people show up and help them when they're going through suffering. What God's, what's God doing? He's establishing the gospel in our lives. He's showing us it's not just the truth of Jesus. It's also the love of Jesus. He's even showing a world around us that people will know that we're his followers by how we love one another. And so and this is as a result of that. Verse seven says in chapter six, the word of God continued to increase. The number number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests were most resistant to the gospel. And even the priests now are trusting in the person and the work of Jesus. What is God doing? He's establishing the gospel. But he's also growing the gospel. Stephen and Acts chapter 8, and I know I'm going through this in light speed, but it's four chapters and I have 30 minutes, okay? So hang with me. In chapter 8, verse 1, he's stoned to death. And what happens? There arose, it says, on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Let's talk about that. Samaria. If you were Jewish, the last place you wanted to go was Samaria. They didn't see God like you saw God. They didn't worship God like you worshiped God. They were the ones, they were the half-breeds. You didn't want them in your life. If If you were traveling from... From Judea up to Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his ministry, you didn't go through Samaria. You went around. I know it took you longer, but you hated the place so much you wanted to avoid it. Far more than a K-stater hates a KU or whatever. I mean, it, it was deep and they didn't want to go there. How would the gospel be taken to Samaria? Remember Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses in, Jude- in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. They really were praying that he would keep Samaria out of that picture. I can handle Judea and the end of the earth, but don't put Samaria in there. How does he get in there? Persecution, suffering, the only place. And this group scatters. They literally... They literally move from Jerusalem and in fear, just scatter to all these cities in Samaria. Why? Because the last place they thought the priests and the leaders would ever look for them would be in the place of Samaria. Yet that's how the gospel got to Samaria. They didn't get together and they said, hey, let's pray. We really feel God leading us to go to Samaria. And so we're going to do a prayer meeting and anyone next week who wants to go to Samaria, just let yourself know and we'll help you go there. It's going to be a nice short term mission trip, but you can go there. No, it was get out of Jerusalem. God kind of moving them out through through suffering to go and, and get out of that place. 
Now, sometimes God does that with us. He moves us out of our comfort zone to move us into places we would never go unless we had to. God has a heart for everyone, not just the people we like to love. He has a heart for everyone. God's not only growing the gospel, he's harvesting the gospel. Because Philip, another one of the seven deacons selected to care for those widows, also preached the gospel. And here he's preaching in Samaria. And in verse 6, it says, The crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And then, look at this, verse 12 of chapter 8. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Look at what happened. They were baptized with men, both men and women. The gospel knows no gender. It's whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. They believed they were baptized. The gospel advanced. The gospel is being harvested in the ground of suffering. If you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. But here's the deal. I'm never going to be able to tell you this side of glory exactly why you're suffering. I just can't. And frankly, only God knows. But one thing I do know, because I see it in his word very clearly, and I also see it in your experience as I come alongside people who are suffering, and that is, instead of you being pushed to the sidelines of God's plan, suffering actually, I believe, brings you into the spotlight of God's plan. He uses suffering for his purposes. Nothing will limit him. It may not be the life that you planned. It may not be the life you expected with God. But here's the deal. Someday he will show you why. Someday in glory he will say, this is what I was doing when you were suffering. Can you hang on to his hand, not knowing why, but knowing what he does when people suffer? I think we can a little bit better knowing that God's not on the sidelines. He's called you to the center. And I think about it. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was talking about his own life, but he's also talking about anyone who followed him. It's this concept that when we follow Jesus, there's going to be things about us that have to die in order that he can live through us. Whether it's die to sin or die to comfort, or die to my expectation of life, that suffering has broken. We're called to follow Jesus. So I want to bring you back to this. And this is our response. And wherever you're at in suffering, there's usually stages to it. And as we have helped navigate this with many, many people, here's a few things I can just give you. The first one is, it's time... Rather than denying God to work through your suffering, to accept him, to accept what he's doing in your life, to give him the opportunity to work outside of your plan, but pretty much at the center of his. For me, at times uh, when things don't go the way I want them to, do, to go, it's, it's really, well, God, that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. That no was not what I was expecting. That can't, man, that just gets me riled up. To, I want to say I can 
And that limitation, I accept. That says that's part of your plan, and I'm willing to trust you with this one. I will trust you, which is the next one. And the next stage, you're basically praying and you're trusting God and you're you're seeking the best help. You're managing, if it's physical, you're managing pain with the best medical help you can, but you're trusting God. That's your first move. I'm trusting God and I'm seeking what he's provided to help us here. In enduring. There are going to be days when you just have to endure. Things aren't going the way you expected. Things aren't getting better. Sometimes they go four steps ahead. Sometimes they go six steps behind. But suffering reveals weakness. And it's in our weakness that we have to be willing to endure with the power of Jesus in our lives. Sometimes that means praying for the next minute for strength for that or the next hour or the next day. So much of our lives is built around daily things, daily bread, daily provision from God. And when you're suffering, you don't need a five-year plan. You need a five-hour plan. What am I going to do? Maybe even five minutes. This is what I'll do now. I'll endure. Some of you are, have walked away from God through suffering. It becomes the major speed bump to your faith and growing in faith. Well, can I suggest that God has given people throughout the history of his followers, Old and New Testament, who have worshipped him in the worst storms of life. And I'll tell you, for me, there's times where I just kind of take out all that secular music and put it to the side and only put worship music on so that my mind and my affections and my passion, I'm passionate about music, that that can be centered on Christ. And some of my richest times of worship were just driving from point A to point B with worship music on in the car. And the tears would come down as I realized I'm loved by God. I was reminded that God's with me and that God is providing strength for each day. I needed that. Some of those richest times, don't deny God the opportunity and don't stop worshiping when you're going through a difficult time. And finally, bless you know, God's going to bring you through this some way. It may not be the plan that you have had, but he's going to bring you through it. Ultimately, he will bring everyone through us if we know Christ into eternal life. But here's the deal. Be a blessing along the way. There's going to be people sometimes when you're dealing with something, whether it's mental illness, you're going to realize how many people around you are struggling with mental illness. Do you know what kind of blessing you can be? Not just to say me too. Not just to say me too, which are comforting words, words of empathy, but to also trust God together. Do you know the blessing you can be when you suffer? You're not at the sidelines. You're at the center of exactly what God wants to do. Because at the end, at the end, God wants you in his family. He wants the Holy Spirit to be reflected through your life. And he wants others to be reached with the gospel. And sometimes it might require suffering for that to happen. Are you open? Are you available? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your love for us. This is not an easy message to preach. It's not an easy message, especially if you're suffering to hear. But Lord, move through whatever resistant or missed expectations we have of you. And Lord, we give you glory in the midst of this. We don't know how things are going to end up, but right now, we want to worship you. Fathers, we sing this next song. Would you work in our hearts to allow you to work, 
to, to hold the ground that you have placed us on through the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit who's still alive and at work in your people. And may Jesus receive the glory through blessing and through suffering. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.